0: Good morning, everybody. I am Snegdar Sharma. I am going to present the Hindu editorial dated 28th November 2020. This podcast is for those who do not have time to read newspaper themselves. The analysis of the editorial is given on the last segment of the podcast. Let's get started. Happy preparation. The first article of the day is a world in chaos and a moment of truth. Informational autocracy is the latest danger that threatens democracies. This article is written by MK Narayanan. Change is the essence of time, we have been fed on stories on how men in authority take critical decision after deep and deliberate introspection. Recent events, however, are testimony to the fact that there is no longer true in today's world, America's divide and beyond. The presumption that existence of acute, acutely sharp divisions between liberals and conservatives and, competition between ideologues and hardcore practitioners alo- alone are endangering democracy in today's world w- would hardly the correct. The Shenangya is currently taking place in the world's oldest democracy, and efforts by the US President Donald Trump to, rega- to negate the verdict of the recently held presidential elections partake of a new set of tactics previously seen only in dictatorships. The extent to which Mr. Trump has been willing to go in his attempt to negate the election and the fact that a very sizable segment of the US population seems to be backing him in this attempt suggests that this is the new reality, which not only the US but also the world may have to reckon with in times to come. The lack of shamefacedness on the part of the US authorities, even as they engage in this while lecturing the world about the virtues of democracy, represent a new pole in utilization of fake news. The specter that confronts democracy today is a grave one. In the case of the US, one of the world's oldest democracies, what, are, what we are witnessing is a deep divide one that is equally true of many other democratic nations today, even if fingers are not being pointed at them. Bridging the divide between Mr. Trump's entrenched supporters and victorious camp of President-elect Joe Biden will, hence, be difficult. If the size of a vote bank is an index of an individual's popularity in an election, it will be difficult to wish away the $70 million and all the votes that Mr. Trump has secured in this election, way higher than what he obtained in 2016. Clearly, his support comes from a segment that has serious grievances against policies favored by so-called liberal segments and, in turn, the neglect of their interest. This is true of many other democracies as well and must be viewed as a wake-up call What is evident in that issue of identity or threats to identity are becoming an important issue in elections across democracies. Democracies already confront such problems, but it will become still more evident as time passes. Manipulation of grievances by using psychometric techniques a la Cambridge Analytica, and the use of deep fakes made possible through artificial intelligence further enhances the threat to current notions of democracy. Europe's Problem Meanwhile, much of the world is equally beset by other problems of no mean magnitude, Europe grappling with the resurgent COVID-19 pandemic will need, for instance, to reckon with the reality that notwithstanding any change in leadership with Washington. It is destined to recede further in terms of importance in global politics. An uncertain Brexit will further damage the prospects of both the United Kingdom and Europe. Russia under Vladimir Putin remains an enigma for despite its military strength and strategic congruence with China, its future appears increasingly uncertain. France displays even greater fragility than many other European nations. French values, for instance, appears to be undergoing major changes. All embracing secularism with overweening emphasis on social cohesion seems to be going out of the door in the face of new social and political changes, much of it coming from the actions of a growing Muslim population in France. In France. The recent waves of terrorist attacks, beginning with the beheading recently of a school teacher by an Islamic State supporter, followed by IS violence in Nice, may have been a major trigger raising questions about long held secular beliefs. Recent terrorist attacks, coming on top of the other events in recent years, do appear to have shattered. Francis wanted to claim of being different from most other European and world parts. French President Emmanuel Macron and French leaders have been openly leaning against radical Islam causing Muslim world leaders and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to accuse Mr. Macron of Islamophobia. Terror is returning. Other issues exist which act as a catalyst. To, the, to this emerging situation, terrorism is resurfacing, and with renewed vigour, the Al-Qaeda is again becoming prominent. The IS, which many thought had been vanquished following the victories achieved in Syria and Iraq towards the end of 2018, has returned in full force. In recent weeks, it has carried out spectacular attacks in France, Paris and Nice and in Austria, Vienna. A reminder of the transnational character of the threat it poses to democratic countries. The news IS recruits are in many ways an even greater threat than their predecessors. They combine symbolism with spectacular violence. The intent is to shock the public at large and produce a reaction across the entire Muslim world, reuniting the fading embers of a religio-cultural conflict. Alongside this is a growing concern across the globe about increasing efforts to manipulate information in order to perpetuate a past. Dictatorship and authoritarian regimes were previously accused of resorting to such tactics, but these tactics are no longer confined to repressive regimes. Manipulation of information and also events to achieve certain desired end is becoming the stock and trade of many a democratic regime as well. Mr. Trump's claims, while still in office, that he is the winner in the just concluded US presidential elections and that a fraud had been committed on the voting public by his opponent have a great deal of resonance given his status and authority. Many democratic nations today resort to manipulating data to support or prop up the government's version of events informational autocracy is hence the latest danger that threatens democracies the shoes in india india's democracy has its own problems though of a dissimilar kind in some regions especially where midterm elections are scheduled as in west bengal the atmosphere today is highly polarized meantime while the covid 19 pandemic might have reduced the intensity of protests the ghost of the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens have by no means been laid to the rest. Jammu in Kashmir is witnessing a kind of surface calm, but beneath this there are evident tensions. Aggravating the situations are Pakistan's efforts to push terrorists in even larger numbers, leading to a large-scale casual, casualties, especially among the Indian Army and the security forces personnel. At the political level in Jammu and Kashmir, new equations are being forged for further confrontation as evidenced by setting up of seven-party people's lines for the Gupkar Declaration. India's external environment remains uncertain. The downward spiral in its relation with China has not been arrested. A misplaced belief is being perpetuated that the display of military strength vis a vis China in the Leh Ladakh Heights has greatly increased our bargaining power. On the other hand, as is evident from the announcement made on November 15, that 15 Asia Pacific nations, including China, had signed on to world's biggest trade bloc. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, from which India has been excluded, this seems hardly true. The RCEP, which covers almost a third of the world's economy, is perceived as a springboard for future economic recovery across the region, among the key signatories along with China, Japan, and Australia, Australia, who are members of the Quad. Whatever be the reason adduced by India for this, it does represent not only a cardinal failure of India's bargaining strategy, but equally a true reflection of the current economic and political power equation in Asia and the Asia-Pacific region. Confirming India's isolation in the fa- is the fact that even a weak Pakistan currently racked by internal problems is pursuing a problem policy of provocation, vis-a-vis India confident that the latter is in no position to impose its will. The latest provocation being the holding of assembly elections in Gilgit, Baltistan. India is again being steadily marginalized in Afghanistan where the control of the Taliban is increasing, with all other players in Afghan imbroglio acquiescing in this situation. China's goal. A contrast to the prevailing near disruption among the democracies of the world would be China. No disruptive leadership changes are likely here in the near future. If anything, Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to emerge stronger after the 20th Party Congress in 2022, giving a further impetus to the transformation of China into superpower by 2000 While new foreign policy initiatives may be few, major reform initiatives will be confined to the economy, the energy sector, and new innovation systems. The next article of the day is India's mask of economic liberalisation is liberalism is off. Trade, pro, trade protectionism seems to be the official policy with the government following the path of its ideological learnings. This article is written by Prabhash Ranjan. India's External Affairs Minister Shankar recently disapproved of free trade and global isolation, sounding like a politician of the bygone era, where the government shielded the domestic industry from competition by protecting up protectionist barriers. He said in the name of openness, We have allowed subsidized products and unfair production advantages from abroad to prevail. Justified by the mantra of an open and globalized economy, it was quite extraordinary that an economy as attractive as India allowed the framework to be set by others. He was speaking a dialogue, taking a dig at the free trade agreements. The minister said, the effect of the past trade agreements has been to de-industrialize of some sectors. The fact that these observations were made just a day before 15 countries of the India-Pacific region signed on November 15, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership-RCEP agreement, the largest regional trading arrangement, is no coincidence. Coincidence. The minister tried hard to rationalize the government's decision to walk away from RCEP last year. However, if there are several flaws in Mr. Jay Shankar's argument. Rhetoric versus reality, first, by refusing to sign RCEP, a sign of weakness, not boldness, India is now truly at the margin of the regional and global economy, with the trade multilateralism at WTO remains sluggish, FTAs are the gateways for international trade. By not being part of any major FTA, India cannot be a part of global value chains. India's competitors, such as East Asian nations, by virtue of their being embedded in mega FTAs, are in far superior position to be a part of global value chains and attract foreign investment. Second, has India embraced the economic openness that Mr. Jaishankar laments about? Well, India is surely a much more economy than it was three decades ago. Globally, India continues to remain relatively close when compared to other major economies. According to the WTO, India's applied most favoured nation India's applied most favoured nation's import tariffs are thirteen point eight percent, which is the highest for any major economy likewise according to the united nations conference on trade and development on the import restrictive index india figures in the very restrictive category from 1950 to 2019 india has initiated anti-dumping measures 972 times the highest in the world seriously interfering to protect demo- domestic industry third in blaming FTS for the woes of India's manufacturing, the External Affairs Minister is contract contradicting his own government's economic survey presented earlier this year, which concluded that India has benefited overall from FTAs' signs of war. Moreover, imprisoning FTAs for deindustrialization means being oblivious to the real problems of India industry, Indian industry which is a lack of competitiveness and absence of structural reforms. Fourth, the the external minister, following the finest traditions of the Narendra Modi government, criticized the past governments for compromising India's interests by doing business, as per the framework set by others. However, he did not share why his government utterly failed in the last six years to convince 50 other RCEP nations about framework that would be advantageous to India. Finally, in criticizing economic openness and globalization, the external affairs minister wholly ignored the fact that India has been one of the major beneficiaries of economic globalization, a fact attested by the IMF. Post-1991, the Indian economy grew at a faster pace, ushering in an era of economic prosperity. According to the economist and professor Arvind Pangaria poverty in rural and urban areas which stood at close to 40% in 2004 to 2005 almost halved to about 20% by 2011 to 2012 this was due to india's clogging and average economic growth rate of almost 8% with international trade with the major engine of progress Economic liberalism, illiberalism, economic, illiberalism. The comments of the external affairs minister gives us a window to understand the larger ideological moorings of the Narendra Modi government on free trade. When Mr. Modi became the prime minister in 2014, it was widely perceived that while his government might be socially conservative, it would be economical, liberal, and advocate globalization and free trade. This was even though all ideological gurus of Sing- Sangh Parivar, whether Deen Dayal Upadhyay or Dattopant Tenggadi, championed Swadeshi versus Videshi. Over the last few years, the Narendra Modi government has started walking on the path shown by its ideological gurus. Tariffs have been increased, FTAs are being demonized, and vocal for local, which strikes at the heart of international trade and go- globalization is the new mantra. The Prime Minister's desire to make India a global destination for foreign investment is a pipe dream. Because it is naive to expect foreign investors to be gung-ho about investing in India if trade protectionism is government's official policy. The mask of economic liberalism is finally off and the real ideological colours are there for everyone to see. Article of the day is another bailout. Overall banking sector health is a concern despite the RBI's preemptive rescue efforts. RBI's decision to recommend the imposition of one-month moratorium on Lakshmi Vilas Bank and almost simultaneously announced a draft scheme of amalgamation that entails the Indian unit of the Singapore government-controlled DBS Bank taking over the capital-starved private lender marks a welcome intervention by the banking regulator. The well choreographed move will protect the interests of depositors and employees, while shareholders will see the value of their holdings written off once the merger is operationalized coming just about 8 months after another fl- flailing private lender yes bank was rescued by an rbi orchestrated capital infusion the karur based banks proposed bailout signals that the regulator is keen to proactively step in towards of risk to wider financial sector stability that the lvb had become a candidate for regulatory intervention was evident after its continuous losses steady erosion of its net worth and inability to raise fresh capitals to bolster its balance sheet. Despite being placed under the RBI's prompt corrective action framework in September 2019, the lender's finance deteriorated to the point where its gross ratio of non-performing assets to capital shot up to 25.4% in March 2020. And here, one capital ratio turned a negative 0.88% 0.8%, at the end of that quarter. The capital ratio subsequently worsened to minus 4.8% by the end of the September, tripping the central bank's hand. Overall banking sector health, however, remains a significant concern notwithstanding their latest rescue efforts. On Wednesday, Gita Gopinath the IMF's chief economist, flagged the wide-ranging damage this COVID-19 pandemic had inflicted on the global economy and warned of deeper legacy scars. More steps for corporate balance sheet and governments burdened with large debt. For all its liquidity bolstering measures since March, the RBI now faces the prospect of having to maintain a heightened vigil over scheduled commercial banks, as well as non banking financial companies and mortgage lenders, given the threat of contention from failure here. The RBI had in its Financial Stability Report in July pointed out that its test indicated that the gross NPA ratio of commercial banks could worsen to 14.7% by March 2021, from 8.5% a year earlier if the pandemic's adverse economic impact caused the GDP to contract by 8.9% in the current fiscal. In October, the bank forecast India's GDP would shrink by 9.5% and earlier this month cautioned that lurking around the corner was a major risk of stress intensifying among households and firms that could spill over into the financial sector. The RBI has its task cut out ensuring it keeps a crucial engine of the credit ticking over as the economy strives revive. The last article of the day is Scurving on air by Gautry. The distinction between free speech and hate speech could be at the heart of regulation. The Supreme Court's poses to the Union Government on the measures it can and is willing to take against communally slandered television coverage should not end in undesirable consequences. The question appears to be an attempt to elicit a commi- commencement. Commitment elicit a commitment to a course of action that will curb inflammatory journalism on broadcasting media. However, the court's warning is that if the government fails to explain its mechanism to deal with the problem, it would create one or its own may take that a debate down a slippery slope. The court is hearing petitions against the communal colour given by the Samchanas to the incidence of large clusters of COVID 19 infections among those who attended a Tabliki Jamaat event in New Delhi. The portrayal of the participants as international super spreaders was vicious and motivated. Curiously, the center seems reluctant to intervene while the court seems to be batting for greater media regulation. The center's affidavit stated that media's coverage predominantly struck a balanced neutral p- perspective and that it was open to the viewers to choose from a number of varying perspectives given by different media channels. However, the court is keen to know what actions has been taken under the C- Cable Television Networks Regulation acts against offending broadcasters. One hopes that the centre's position arises from a commitment to media freedom and is not based on partition leniency towards channels that peddled a certain narrative that suited its interest. The court appears unconvinced that the present mechanism of self-regulation the National Broadcasting Standards Authority is effective. It would be in order if the self-regulation mechanism deals with departures from normative mechan- journalism. And the government is in any case empowered under the Act to prohibit transmission of programs that violate the programs or advertising codes and even an entire channel in public interest. Section 20. In the past, channels have been asked by the INB ministry to take some programs of the year. There is no doubt that egregious violations of norms are not uncommon. Depending on the damage done to individuals or institutions or even society at large, there is enough scope for actions under the penal law. However, there is a class of violation of norms in broadcasting that stands apart. The case of Sudarshan News, which began a series that propagated hate against Muslims, is a flagrant example. The government has merely administered a caution to the channel and asked it to moderate the content of future episodes and avoid preaching the program code. In September, while ordering the suspension of further episodes, the court distinguished between free speech and hate speech. The distinction should be at heart of any order creating a new mechanism. If at all, one is needed to deal with broadcast media excesses.